0: Part two, of human sacrifice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Allen. Human sacrifice by John Amirich, Edward Dahlberg. Part two. The union of bloodshed and licentiousness had one of its roots in the physical philosophy of the old world, which considered generation and destruction, like night and day, to be the necessary and mutually produced succession of being caused by the eccentric motion of the premium mobile in the elliptic. Thora The necessary prelude of all production was used in two meanings, destruction by death and pollution. The same philosophy is still exemplified in the Indian rites of Siva, Kali, and Juggernath. The notion of the physical productivity of sacrifice may be connected with the idea of Empedocles that flesh and bone were the simple elements and the universal germs, of earth, water, and air, and this accounts for the intimate connection between human sacrifice and agriculture. In another aspect, the passage from the slaughter of the innocent victim to the ruin of the innocence, which gave it its value was strictly logical, as the spilling of blood was substituted in so many cases for the sacrifice of the life that was in the blood, so the destruction of innocence was substituted for the sacrifice of the innocent without any original reference to the hatefulness of the means by which the substitution was made, but simply on the principle that, instead of the victim itself, that which gave it value might be sacrificed. But there is also an ethical relationship between the two acts expressed in the verb leaving the general question to moralists and psychologists, we may observe that, with whatever indifference men might have sacrificed captives, criminals, or slaves, they could not cast their children into the fire without feeling that they were tearing out a fiber, as it were, of their own selves, or without awakening an unnatural frenzy, which might easily lead them to gloat over destruction, and to invert the right impulses of humanity, precisely in the same way as the frenzy of sensuality does. The union of the two frenzies is shown in the self-mutilating orgesists of Sabelle and Adius. Immoral rites and inhuman ceremonies are cognate and corresponding caricatures of the true ideas of worship and of love. Thus, Human sacrifice was the turning point at which paganism passed from morality to wickedness. The highest possible effort at expiation became the natural source of unnatural practices and ideas. The human victim was put to death as a substitute for the conversion and purification of the sinner, and a door was opened for the rites in which all distinction of virtue and vice was ignored, and sin itself was often made meritorious. Religio piperet scelerosa, atque impia facta. At this stage, even the indistinct and ignorant worship of God, which had survived in polytheism, was abandoned, and that of other powers usurped its place. It is this distinction between the pure and more corrupt paganism which accounts for the opposite views taken of it by theologians, the Jews and early Christians, who saw paganism in its last stage of degradation universally believed that its gods were devils. In the Bible, this identity is not distinctly expressed. Sometimes the gods are said to have had no real existence, sometimes to be demons. The same Hebrew word is translated by the Seventy in three ways, demons, idols, and vanities. St. Paul is careful not to assert the real existence of the gods while he says that the devils receive the homage offered to them. The early fathers understood that these gods were actual devils. Justin Martyr, who with all the Antonicene fathers but one, interprets Genesis 6, 2, of sinful angels, holds that their offspring were the demons who became heathen gods and actually existed in the form represented by the idols and perpetrated all the crimes recorded in mythology. St. Augustine believed that the gods were real devils, who usurp the place of God in order to enjoy the homage due to him, and intercept the prayers and sacrifices intended for him. But this opinion, in its sweeping universality, has not held its ground among Christian philosophers and divines. Yet the character of certain rites is so distinctly diabolical as to confirm the belief that in these cases, particular demons both inspired and received the abominable worship. When paganism had reached this development, all that had mitigated or redeemed its demoralizing influence at once disappeared. They could no longer soften manners, uphold the sanctity of law, tame pride and passion, or inculcate reverence for the past or care for the future. All those social and political influences which distinguished the religions of Greece, Persia, and Rome were lost, and the degraded worship became the poison of morality and the enemy of civilization and every pagan religion exhibited such a phase when the old belief was disintegrated, and when the powers which had gradually led men away from God seemed finally to have usurped his place. This phase has not always coincided with the period of lowest national decline, because in some favored countries an intellectual reaction has transformed a perishing religion, or skepticism has delivered men from its thraldom. Quote, et politores, Amines et minos creduli esse cooperant. But wherever there was no such intellectual revival to produce a conflict between the awakened reason and the degenerating tradition, and wherever error pursued its blindfold course unchecked by great lawgivers like those of India, Persia, and China, or by culture like that of the classic world, there the horrors of paganism developed themselves helplessly though the only remedy was the strong hand of an imperial administration, as in Gaul, the extermination of the priesthood, as in Britain, or the destruction of the race itself, as in Central America. There is no other natural term. The orgies of the Syrian Venus were revived at fixed intervals in the Lebanon down to the 19th century. Greece presents a contrast to the unvarying East in the modifications which a people of restless temper and sharp intellect introduced into the original idea of human sacrifice, and in the rapidity with which the rite passed through all phases of progress and decline. The stubborn consistence and unreflecting conservatism of the Punic race converted religious earnestness into a demoralizing influence, while the unstable indifference, the keen vital enjoyment, and the intellectual liberty of the Greek soon made the rigid ceremonial of expiation conformed to the feelings of a civilization in which religion was not the only, and sometimes not the most powerful, of the influencing forces. Without questioning that human sacrifice was indeed the most efficacious of offerings, the Greek felt that it was connected with a more earnest religion, a more cheerless theology, a more mystical philosophy, than that which belonged to the fantastic and poetical world of Greek mythology he never lost sight of the foreign and barbarous origin of the rite. It was strange and unhallowed, alien from Hellenic manners, Heracles, who represents their influence, suppressed it in Italy. The chorus in Euripides condemns the sacrifice of Epigenia, and Herodotus calls the sacrifice of two Egyptian boys, by Menelaus, to obtain a fair wind and unholy act. Briga muk Aeschyles and Herodotus are the earliest writers who mention it, and from the first it is regarded with fear and aversion. The mythology of Greece knew nothing of propitiatory human sacrifice, in which the victim is offered up as a better kind of animal. The myth of Pelops was referred to Phrygia. Neither legends nor histories know of human victims, except an expiation of offenses that had drawn down public calamities and even then it was desired that the act should be the victim's own, and that he who died for thousands should die cheerfully, and then there was little need of any religious rite. The centaur, Chiron, whom one authority calls the inventor of sacrifice, was the earliest mythological personage who gave up his life to ransom another, when he resigned his immortality in favor of Prometheus. The daughters of Orion volunteered to die when the oracle declared that a pestilence could only be averted from Annoea by the voluntary deaths of two maidens. So Macaria and the daughters of Erechtheus and Cordus and Cretinus, in historic times, died for Attica. At Thebes, the king's son slew himself in obedience to the prophecy of Tiresias Even the death of Leonidas was counted among voluntary sacrifices. Now in all these cases the responsibility was thrown upon the oracles, or upon the gods, not one is represented as proceeding from the customs of the people. The right could not long subsist in this pure form. The dread of it, which at first made the Greeks ascribe it to the direct command of their gods, and require the victim to be a voluntary one, soon led to further changes, which portended its gradual but sure extinction for when once the rigid consistency of the original Moloch worship was abandoned, an opening was given for the irresistible influence of civilization and humanity, of religious skepticism, and the sense of men's social and moral rights. The First Amendment was to select the victim by lot. The idea grew naturally from the democratic institutions of Athens, but its earliest victim was the daughter of Aristodemus in the First Mycenaean War. The next change was to give the victim a chance to escape. The oracle had decreed that to expiate the violence offered to Cassandra, for a thousand years two Locrian virgins should be annually sent to Troy, where they were sacrificed, unless they could escape into the temple of Pallas. At Athens, the rite soon degenerated. Two poor persons were annually sacrificed for the people. The same usage prevailed in other places, but instead of the spotless and voluntary victim, first a slave or a captive, and afterwards an animal, was slaughtered with the consent of the god, or blood was drawn without destruction of life, or the victim was slain in effigy. Yet, in spite of the horror which devised all these modes of evading the right, we find traces of it throughout almost the whole Hellenic world, in the cultus of almost every god, and in all periods of their independent history. There is no nation, says Salle, of which more numerous or more various sacrifices of human victims are recorded. Gerhard has classified the instances geographically and assigned them to their respective myths. In the middle of the 4th century BC, Plato speaks of the rite as a common custom and is not entirely abolished even at the beginning of the Christian era. Yet the Greek religion could never be thoroughly harmonized with making the present life unhappy to secure enjoyment in the next and with atoning for all evil actions by voluntary suffering, which is the natural development of the doctrine of expiation by sacrifice. A system, then, which enacts bloody sacrifices without providing for the lower grades by inculcating self-imposed penance, moral discipline, and self-denial, is mutilated and inconsistent. The idea of expiation requires more than a substituted victim. It is but a superficial theology... Which would exempt the sinner from any effort beyond that of providing a vicarious sufferer. But the Greek idea, at least in historic times, was never properly theological, for the victim did not wash away the guilt of the individual, but only warded off the consequences of sin from the community. And these consequences remained after the guilt was washed away. Orestes, though purified of his mother's blood, was still pursued by the furies. It was not the conscience of guilt but the terror of its consequences, which overcame the humanity of the Greeks. Where this terror found no place, there, instead of the human victims, which other nations offered, they contented themselves with headicombs of animals, and with the mysteries which unquestionably satisfied those religious cravings that in other places could only be appeased by human sacrifice. But in Rome, where religion was more real, the awe of the gods greater, the view of life more earnest and gloomy, and morals more severe, human sacrifice was less hateful to the popular mind. There was no horror of bloodshed in the national character, and no provision for substituting an easier atonement for human victims in the religious ritual. The deification of the state made every sacrifice which it exacted seem as nothing in comparison with the fortune of Rome, and the perils which for centuries menaced it from Carthage or Gaul Epirus or Pontus, Parthia, Spain or Germany, each demanded its human victims. There are but few records of the sentiments of the earlier Romans. The bulk of their literature belongs to the age of universal empire, when the people dwelt securely in the capital of the world, thinking only of distant conquest, and when their religion had lost its local and national character. As Prudentius says, Roma! Antiqua sebi non costat versa per evam et mutata sacris ornatu legibus armis multa colit que non colit sob regi corino instituit Quidam melius non nulla refugit et morum variare situm non dasinet et que pridem condiderat jura in contraria vertit quid mihi tu solitos Romane Senator Objectus Cumsquito Patrum Populique Frequenter Instabilis Placiti sententia flexa novarit. When the fullness of time was at hand, the energy of the old belief was broken, and the decomposition of the national religion was first manifested in its effects on that right which was its highest and most forcible expression. Those substitutions were adopted which became to after ages, the proof of the earlier prevalence of human sacrifice, while the Etruscan influence was strong. Resemblances, as Servius says, were taken for realities. The name was held to be as good as the thing. Dolls were flung into the Tiber instead of men, and it was pretended that the animals which were sacrificed were human beings transformed. Human sacrifices were first prohibited in the Republic, BC 95. And, quote, for some time, says Pliny, the open celebration of the monstrous rite was unheard of, unquote. But as Salique says on the passage, Pliny can only have meant that human sacrifice for magical purposes ceased, as he must have known that men continued to be publicly offered for other causes down to his own times. The few traces that remain prove that the magical rite was still practiced, though in secret and with shame whilst human victims continued to be publicly immolated for other ends, till they also were prescribed by the law. Augustus interdicted all Roman citizens from partaking in the inhuman rites of the Druids, whose sacrifices were suppressed by Claudius in Gaul, and by Suetonius in Britain. In the sentences of Julius Pallas, written in the beginning of the third century, we find a law making it a capital offense to offer a human sacrifice either secretly or in a temple. This must be drawn from the Edict of Hadrian, to which many later writers attribute the extinction of the practice, but the belief in the magical or atoning efficacy of human blood grew under the influence of Oriental priests, with the increasing stringency of the law that forbade it. And human victims perished long after the decree of the year 97 BC, and in defiance even of the Edict of Hadrian. In the year 63 BC, Catiline and his accomplices sacrificed a boy, and ratified the oath they had taken over his bleeding body by eating his flesh. Seven years later, Cicero publicly accused Valentinius of offering up human victims to the infernal gods. Juvenal speaks of similar practices under the Flavian Caesars, and Justin Martyr under the Antonines. In the times of Marcus Aurelius, Aristides, the rhetorician, who had been for many years afflicted with an incurable disease and as a priest of he was used to receive in his sleep directions from the god through which he had hoped for a cure learnt one day when he felt himself better that his foster brother Hermias had just sacrificed his own life to save him a sister Philomenia remained to whom he was affectionately attached but he was warned by the god that unless she died he could not live Cossibon understands Aristides to say that she also was sacrificed. He for whom they died published the facts to the world in his sacred orations. While the Roman people were restrained by the law, and by a horror still more effective, was practiced by their rulers without fear or disguise, in every generation of the four centuries from the fall of the Republic to the establishment of Christianity, human victims were sacrificed by the emperors. In the year 46 BC, Julius Caesar, after suppressing a mutiny, caused one soldier to be executed, while at the same time two others were sacrificed by the flamen of Mars on the altar in the campus Martius. The historian is careful to distinguish the religious rite from the military execution, and there are many reasons against supposing that the priest could have been a common executioner. Five years later, when Perugia was taken, Octavian sacrificed 300 senators and knights to his deified predecessor, and the altars of Perugia became a proverb. In the same age, Sextus Pompeius flung captives into the sea as a sacrifice to his father Neptune. Augustus sacrificed a maiden named Gregoria and buried her beneath the walls of Ancyra. Another, Antigone, was sacrificed by Tiberius when he built the theater of Antioch. When Germanicus died, his house was found to be lined with charms, images, and bones of men whom Tiberius had sacrificed to the infernal gods to hasten his end. Augustus had refused to let a senator offer his life to prolong the days of the emperor, but Caligula compelled one to die, who having thus devoted himself, shrank at the last moment from consummating the sacrifice. Nero, by the advice of the astrologers, put many nobles to death to avert from himself. The evils with which a comet threatened him. Trajan, when he rebuilt Antioch, sacrificed the beautiful Calliope and placed her statue in the theater. In the next reign, Antoninus offered himself up for Hadrian. Commodus sacrificed a man to Mithra. Didius Julianus offered sacrifices of children, and Caracalla sacrificed human victims in the temple of Serapis. Heligalibus sacrificed children according to the Syrian rites, and Valerian, in obedience to an Egyptian magician. Aurelian, when the frontiers were threatened by the Macromani, ordered the sacred books to be opened, and declared that from every nation victims must be supplied for the altars. At the beginning of the 4th century, Maxentius divined the future by sacrificing infants and opening the bodies of pregnant women the same rites were practiced by Julian the Apostate. After his death, the body of a woman was found hanging by the hair in a temple at Caré. He had inspected her entrails to divine the issue of his campaign, and his palace at Antioch was filled with the corpses of human victims. In the year 371, the tribune, Polinantius, confessed that he had sacrificed a woman to the infernal gods in the hope of compassing the destruction of Valens. The instances recur with a uniformity which proved the practice to have been habitual. The un-Roman rite of burying alive a man and woman of the nation with which Rome was at war, described by Livy, survived to the days of the elder Pliny. Children were publicly sacrificed to Moloch in Africa until the middle of the second century. The Romans had crucified the priests on the trees around the temple, but the rite was not extinct in the time of Tertullian. Eusebius, indeed, believed that the Edict of Hadrian had effected its purpose, but Porphyry speaks as if human sacrifices lasted until the close of the third century. But it is unnecessary to prove the Romans' practice so circumstantially, when in fact the combats of gladiators were a form of the rite, in which the religious idea still survived beneath the secularity of the spectacle. At first, these shows were celebrated for the souls of the dead like the games which Achilles united with the sacrifice of prisoners at the funeral of Patrocles. At the death of Junius Brutus, the victims furnished by the gentes were so numerous that they were made to fight together and kill each other, thus converting the rite into a spectacle. The gods in whose honor these games were held was the same who devoured his children. In two places, combats distinctly religious in character survived to a very late period, under Marcus Aurelius, the candidates for the priesthood of Diana at Arcea fought at her temple, and the survivor obtained it, and on the same Alban Mount, a gladiator was annually sacrificed to Jupiter, Latierus, until the time of Constantine. But though the Romans were not too civilized to endure the spectacle of wholesale massacre, in which the memory of a religious origin was dimmed by the splendor of the unholy festivity Yet they retained too little of the old spirit to tolerate an inhuman right, the object of which was simply religious. Yet a people in whom unbelief was counterbalanced by superstition, and who were familiar with bloodshed, required no more than the example of their emperors and the incentives of magic, and of the Phoenician and Celtic worship, to confirm them in a taste for sacrifices, for which slavery supplied the victims and secured impunity." The practice defied the laws of the empire, and ceased only with the downfall of paganism. Among the barbarians, it survived still longer, and resisted even the preaching of the Christian faith. The human sacrifices of the Druids may have begun in cannibalism. Strabo says that the Celts of Gaul and Spain were taught by famine to eat human flesh, and he cites a rumor that it was the ordinary practice in Ireland. Diodorus confirms the report and St. Jerome, in the middle of the 4th century, was an eyewitness of the cannibalism of the British people, who picked out the choicest morsels with gluttonous relish. Salinas shows the connection between this unnatural custom and the religious rite when he speaks of the Irish drinking the blood of their victims. There are indications of the progress in Druidism from an earlier period, when such barbarous customs were widely spread in the race to its high development in the age of Caesar. The intermediate phase is shown in a practice out of harmony with the latest form, which had died out not long before the conquest of Gaul, that of burning the clients and slaves of the deceased together with all that had been most useful to him that is, funeral. Two centuries before Caesar, the Gauls strove to atone for their offenses against the gods by the sacrifice of innocent human victims. Thus, in their wars against Antigonus, they offered up their wives and children to expiate the menaces of the adverse omens, and Cicero says that any fear led them to offer human sacrifices to avert the peril. On this idea, the later Druidic sacrifices, which so horrified the skeptical Romans, were founded. First, the notion that each man brought himself off by substituting another and criminals were kept in prison to be thus immolated, for private persons had no right to sacrifice the innocent. But in the public sacrifices, when the supply of criminals was insufficient, then, in the interest of all, the innocent might be slain. And when the occasion was exceptional, as when the plague visited Marseilles, the atoning victim was not chosen from amongst the criminals, but some poor and harmless man voluntarily offered his life, and on To his head, after he had been maintained for a year at the public expense, the woes of the city were solemnly transferred, and he was thrown into the sea. For the ordinary quinquennial sacrifices, however, enemies and criminals were reckoned sufficient. They were massacred in various ways. Some were crucified, some pierced with arrows, and large numbers burnt in one heap with the firstlings of various kinds. These were not expiatory sacrifices, but propitiatory thank offerings of the earliest and simplest type, and men were offered as the best victims, not in kind, but in degree. The divination sometimes connected with the rite was not its primary object. The druids inspected the victims to augur how the gods had accepted him. Great authorities have concluded from Lucian's lines, Et quibius, imidius, Sanguine diro, tutetes Horenske feris, altaribus Hesus et terrenus non meteor erudiene, that men were sacrificed to all the principal Celtic gods. This, however, would have been inconsistent with the refining subtlety of the Druidic theology, and we have not sufficient warrant in the classics for the notion. Tertullian and Mnucius Felix know of human sacrifices only of their chief god, Mercury, to Tates. Zeus argues that men must have been sacrificed to Mars, Jesus, if they were offered to Apollo, but Diodorus does not mention it in his account of the cultus of Apollo, and Caesar omits men from his catalogue of the offerings made to Mars. Perhaps, however, the victims slain before battle were offered to Mars, to whom, as well as Mercury, Lactantius says that men were sacrificed. End of Part Two.